I will never tell someone a miscarriage makes sense or it's a blessing. But for me, I can tell you now, looking back, it was a strange blessing because it really deeply crystallized my commitment to having a baby, however that came into my life. What would you do all over again and why? I'm Natalie Carpenter, women's health and fertility advocate, dot connector, and former corporate brand warrior. Each week, join me in candid conversation with an inspiring public figure who boldly shares their real-life stories of adversity, impact, and what they did next, and if they would do it all over again, knowing what they know now. Welcome to the All Over Again podcast. If you could do it all over again, would you still become the face of breaking the taboo of infertility? It's so interesting because I really never wanted to be that face. And in fact, you know, my background is sex and relationships, which is a heck of a lot sexier than infertility, in case you didn't know that. But yes, I would. It was not only something powerful, I think, to be a face early on the scene in this conversation, but it helped me in my own infertility journey to actually come out of the closet and show my face. And how has infertility changed who you are? It's changed everything about my life. What's interesting is I was diagnosed at 14 with probable infertility, probable endometriosis. Of course, you know, if they don't open you, they can't know for sure. But when I got married, I told my husband it may take us a little bit to have kids because I was aware of my infertility. But I never thought it would be such a defining moment in my life. I just thought it was something that might take us like a little longer. And we got married kind of young, so I wasn't concerned. The way it changed me, it changed everything. It changed, I was commitment phobic in the past. I wasn't someone born to be a mom. Like I didn't always know I wanted to have kids. It made me so clear that I wanted to have kids. It made me so grateful when I finally had my daughter so many years later. It created this career, my calling that I feel I was meant to do. So yeah, it's it's actually how did it not change me would be a shorter answer. And in hindsight, what would you have told the Andrea that wasn't getting pregnant? I would have told her, first of all, it's, it's normal to grieve. So even if I looked at a crystal ball and someone said, you have this amazing daughter, it might take almost a decade to meet her, but she's amazing. I would have just told myself to grieve when I needed to grieve and believe when I needed to believe and that they can coexist and not to put the pressure on myself that I always had to feel one way or the other. That's the sneaky thing I think about grief, that when we have good moments of hope, we might even feel guilty for that, like after a miscarriage, for instance. Or when we are feeling down, we feel bad that I'm not being positive enough because everyone, when you're, you know this, when you're struggling to get and stay pregnant, tells you to stay positive. And then you feel guilty. Maybe that's why it's not working. And I just would say, allow in all the feelings because they're all normal and they're all, you're growing a lot through this. You're learning a lot and it's okay. In our society, we don't talk a whole lot about grief or infertility for that matter. Do you think the grief part and the guilt, right? But the grief makes infertility so taboo? Well, you know, it's an interesting question because I don't think it's grief that makes it taboo, although I do agree that 
as a society in Western culture anyway, we don't, we're uncomfortable with grief. Like we don't know how to deal with grief. That said, I think the issue with, if I were to generalize, I think the issue with the infertility experience is that other people don't realize how deeply you will grieve while you're struggling. And they'll put on you all these platitudes about how you should be feeling and what you should be doing, what worked for me, what my cousin did, think positively, oh, at least you got pregnant, whatever those those things to make you feel better are actually make you feel terrible because they're not recognizing your grief. And we've published on pregnant essays all about this from a cancer survivor who said, well, cancer treatment was really hard. People understood I had a medical issue and they grieved with me. And then when I was going through infertility and grieving, nobody grieved with me. That's where I think it's the taboo can happen. With infertility, you can go in with the best of hopes and the outcome may not actually go anywhere. I mean, it could just fall flat and you've spent tens of thousands of dollars and you, there's no, there are no guarantees. And so I think that yeah. people think you can literally buy a baby. These they days. think you can buy a baby. They, yeah, they think IVF's a one shot to success, but also they think it's not a life or death scenario. And what I always say, like, it's not that big a deal, like try again. And it literally is a life scenario. Like, it's not life or death. You're not going to die if you don't have a baby. I mean, that's true. But I would argue, and I've covered, as you know, in my career, relationships my entire career, there is nothing more important as a value for people than relationships, than family. You look at these high stakes things, the highest value in the world, of course you're going to be sad when you're not reaching that. It's your highest value, the highest stakes, the most money you've spent, the most you've maybe put your body through, your bank account through, your emotions through. You're not just going to bounce back when it doesn't work. You're going to grieve. And like, that's just normal. Right. And what then if it does work and then you miscarry or that loss is so profound. And I think as a society, going back to the grief and loss, people think, well, you're just going to pick up and you're going to move on. And people want to decide for you how you are supposed to feel and how you are supposed to move forward. And that is so hard. Mm -hmm. Wasn't there, I, and I feel like you yeah. can share this with me. There was some study that equated infertility treatment to the same level of anxiety and yeah. depression that someone with cancer or, or heart disease would go through. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, no, it's, it's absolutely true because I know we'll probably talk about the work we're doing to try to illuminate these things to providers as well. Most of them know this because they're in this field, but sometimes people don't realize the stress anxiety and depression that can come along with this diagnosis and this journey. Journey is such a euphemism. <laughs> it's a journey. Journey sounds like there's happy music and we're skipping along uh, towards the rainbow, but it, it is. It's, it's a very high stress because high stakes equal high stress. So it's not surprising when we actually step back and think about why that might be. Most of us, when we, you know, when I went through my first miscarriage, I remember sharing that I wasn't just grieving for what happened, which I, I was very much grieving for what happened, but 
there was a whole future I had dreamt up when I was pregnant that was taken away from me. And I wrote an essay. My friend has a platform called Modern Loss, all about grief. And I wrote an essay called Unmet Love. And I really believe those of us cycling through this experience love people we haven't met yet. And that's another hard thing for people to understand. And I have covered love for my whole career as an author. And I believe strongly you can love ancestors from the past you've never met that helped your family get to where they are. You can love babies you've never met, embryos that were never babies. All of these things can take on a form of deep love because what is love? It's connecting in the most intimate, vulnerable way. And parts of you emerge that you don't know or hadn't seen. And I loved who I was when I was pregnant before I miscarried. I loved feeling motherly for this being growing inside of me. And I never experienced anything like that. So I think, yeah, I think it's a form of love unless you've been through it. And a lot of people have been through it. That's the other misconception about all of this with miscarriage, especially one in four. And that's what's reported. You may not understand that. Let's talk about how you loved who you were before. So you loved who you were while you were pregnant. Who were you before you were pregnant and that life before you really came to know infertility? I was, and I still think I am, but for brief moments in my experience, I was not. A very free spirit, lover of life and experiences. I was commitment phobic. I wrote a book called He's Just Not Your Type, and that's a good thing based on the fact that actually nobody was my type because I didn't even know if I wanted to get married. My husband was not my type. He was my friend, my hilarious friend, but like not interested. I think what surprised me about being pregnant was the commitment. I mean, obviously I got married and I did make a formal commitment to Michael, my husband. But I, I, if you asked me years before, like how I'd be a mom, I didn't think I'd be as present as I felt being pregnant. I was so present. How awesome is this? This little being and I are like in this together. And I was making different choices for what I put in my body. I love junk food. Like I was just a different, I had a commitment to this person that I didn't know that I didn't naturally have to people. So yeah, it changed me that way. But who am I? Like, I'm still a lover of life and experiences and I love people. I just didn't think I want to be doing less fun things, you know, whether it's with a baby in my belly or a baby in real, you know, on earth side. I didn't think I'd be as joyful to be held back from other experiences to take care of those things. And actually, that's that's also who I am. I want to be a mom. I wanted to be a mom. So it was crystallized for me when I was pregnant. And it felt so good because it felt like, hey, I'm not such a commitment phobe. Like I thought, I, you know, I've been called runaway bride by every guy I dated. <laughs> I can do this. This is me also. And then I was taken away more than once. But that that actually was a strange. I will never tell someone a miscarriage makes sense or it's a blessing. But for me, I can tell you now, looking back, it was a strange blessing because it really deeply crystallized my commitment to having a baby, however that came into my life. And I don't, I don't think had I not gone through those moments, maybe I wouldn't have fought as hard for it. 
Do you think that part of the reason that you went the surrogacy route was because you were so committed and you were ready? So surrogacy is very complicated. I'll, I'll summarize my my eight years to baby in not eight seconds, but maybe a minute. So <laughs> I, in year five or six of everything, and you know, Natalie, when you can't get pregnant easily, I always say I went around the world and back. Uh, Ayurvedic, acupuncture, uh, like in literally every country that had something they offered for fertility, sign me up because something's going to work. When IUI didn't work, it's going to be IVF. When IVF didn't work, and it just kept going like that. And I launched Pregnantish, which I know we'll talk about in the middle of this WTF. Like, is why is this happening? Nothing is working. And it was the greatest blessing for me because when we launched, and there wasn't anything like this. You know this. When we launched, no, like, people were not talking like they are now about fertility and fertility. And... It was the greatest thing because people started sharing their stories. We were telling powerful stories about the lengths people go to to create families. And I suddenly this world opened up to me in year five when I launched Pregnantish that it may not be my egg. It may not be my body. It may not be my genetics. Like, I don't know how I'm going to have a baby, but I'm going to have a baby because everybody I interviewed for Pregnantish, not a single one that didn't have a baby, they the way they thought, which often meant sex. Like, I thought I'd have sex and have a baby. Isn't that the um, way it's supposed to work? Well, right. if you're if you're a heterosexual relationship, yes. Right. That's what we all um, Yes. But yes. when sex does not make baby, most of us have paths we never expected. And so uh, every single person I interviewed for pregnantish kept saying, look, it's not what I expected and I don't regret any of it. Like, my, where I landed is exactly where I was meant to be. The baby I have is who, and a lot of them didn't use their genetics, their body and all these things. Now, I didn't know in year five if it was sperm, egg, because there are three ingredients to make a baby, right? Good sperm, good egg, good uterus, good uterine environment. So my husband, of course, had A++++ sperm. All the testing was like, oh, it goes like over the, like, way higher than we want. You know, he was probably wanting to high five everyone, but also felt guilty because it was like, oh, it's my shitty body at this point. But I knew I had this diagnosis as a teen of endo. And I also knew in year one, I had massive fibroids. So I had a myomectomy to surgically remove. I had open stomach surgery. I thought that would work. But the endo and the fibroids and everything else, I probably didn't have a great uterus. But we didn't know how my eggs were. And I was still like looking like I was producing good embryos because doctors kept, it really both comforted me and bothered me that doctors would say, you make beautiful embryos. Beautiful. <laughs> like, great. But my uterus was always when they were doing ultrasounds and we can't find this, so we can't find that. So without genetic testing though, we couldn't prove it. And this is the year 20, oh gosh, you lose track as you know. I started trying-ish in 2010, 2011. By 2015, I think 2016, we started genetically testing. When did genetic testing come on the scene? Well, it was within those 10 years. I don't know exactly, but it was recent-ish that you could genetically, you still can't genetically test eggs, but you can test embryos. And that technology 
was improving through the years of me cycling and probably you cycling. But I remember in year three of trying IVF, when it was on the scene, I asked a doctor, not to be named, should we test the embryos? And he said, save your money, go to Hawaii. My only regret in the journey is how long I stayed with this doctor because I think his intentions were good. He was like, listen, if it's not healthy, you'll miscarry it. If it is healthy, but that's not an answer because miscarrying is devastating. So like anything to save me from that heartache would have been helpful. Even if we had no healthy embryos, I'd rather not miscarry the unhealthy embryo. So I had a miscarriage with him and then a new doctor, because I changed clinics, which we'll also talk about, a new doctor said to me, you do have beautiful looking embryos. We have to genetically test them to see for sure that it's your uterus, your body, and not your egg and not the sperm. And once we had healthy embryos, my doctor in year five or six said, I think you need a surrogate. And it was both devastating and a relief in, in one moment. I was so depleted, but I was actually relieved. I, when you have things that are not explained, it's very helpful to have an answer, right? So I was relieved, but it was also like mourning that I'd never carry a pregnancy was really hard. So I have to tell you, when I arrived at surrogacy, that was a many year story, probably in many minutes. It was such a journey. Uh, two surrogates dropped out on us. We couldn't afford it. I'm married to a public school teacher. I had a startup. Pregnantish was an unfunded startup. I'm like, I can't do this. I can't have a surrogate. And then my cousin, my first cousin saved the day because, and you should know, my, my surrogate who dropped out on us, I won't name her, but I kind of like fell too hard in the dating way with her because I was sending her flowers. I was sending her daughter gifts. I was so grateful that she was doing this for us. And then she ghosted me. She left me at the altar right before our transfer and right before the paperwork was signed. And it was a five-month process of legal negotiation. She wanted yoga. She wanted nutritional whatever. I said yes to everything. You're the best. You're the best. And then I still to this day don't know what happened to her. So that was a miscarriage in a way because it was my... The home for my baby was ripped away overnight and I was out thousands of dollars. I could not believe in year five or six, this is what now I was facing. And my cousin said, I cannot watch you go through anything more. And I didn't expect to offer, but here I am. Like, and the text that came through, and I know Natalie, you've seen this text. It said, I said, I can't get out of bed. I'm just so sad. And she said, have you ever thought of a family member to help you? And I was literally holding the phone, shaking, and it was so weird. It was like, I knew that was exactly what was going to work. I trusted her with everything. She was one of those people who felt like she sneezed and got pregnant because she always wanted a baby. Like her work schedule was such that being off in December, January was helpful. And she she like would schedule, she had these summer babies because she wanted, she was also off in the summer. Oh my gosh, this sounds so, amazing. Like who like, gets can you to imagine? do that? No. People, I mean, some people are actually, these, these unicorns. These unicorns sometimes, yeah. Like my friend Anna is a Pisces because her parents wanted her to be a Pisces because they're hippies. Wow. But like why I say that is that's hilariously scary for those of us in the infertility world to even comprehend how some people get that but they have other shitty things happen to them. That's one thing I've realized. Like, this is my 
crazy thing, but someone else has a crazy thing that I was came naturally to me or happened to have for me. Everybody's got their something. No matter everybody. what it is, everybody's got everybody. their something. Wow, we are yeah, like all over. I, there's one question I have to yes. ask you. I remember there's a story. There's a really beautiful sort of energetic, bigger picture connection story to your cousin mm-hmm. and the surrogacy path. Mm-hmm. Is that something you're comfortable sharing? Oh, yeah. I mean, thank you for asking. And so my dad was born in hiding during the Holocaust in Hungary. And my dad escaped Hungary during the communist uprising in 1956 with his younger brother, who's 10 years younger, on his back. And my cousin Alana is the daughter of my uncle Johnny, who's my dad's brother, who my dad literally escaped Hungary with on his back. Now, my grandmother had a lot of baby trauma. She was, you know, delivered my dad underground and lost babies during the war. And she was, she just had a lot of sadness for good reason over babies. And when my cousin offered to carry, she said to me, she named after our grandmother. And she said, one thing she said that I'll never forget is, let me try to help rebuild our family because our dads lost so much family in the Holocaust. And my, our grandfather survived a camp Thankfully, my dad and his mom were reunited with my grandfather, but they, my grandfather's parents were killed. Like so many people were killed. And my, my cousin Alana said, I feel like I can help rebuild the family. Where it gets kind of bigger energetically is I had done a, a reading as I went around the world and back. Because one tries everything. You try everything. Yes. I did an energy reading and I, Half my brain thought, this is insane. Like, what am I doing? And the other half of me totally believed it. So I, I, was, I was really unsure, but I was open to it. She hypnotized me. And in the reading, my grandmother came forward. And this was right before the egg retrieval that is now my daughter. And this was in year, what, five or six. She said, um, your grandmother's here and she has a message for you. And she's hiding in the shadows. She's hiding in the dark. My grandmother, when I was four committed suicide. She had had so much trauma. This energy reader said to me, bring her to the light. She has a message for you. And the message was, and keep in mind, Natalie, this was a year or two before my cousin offered. The message was, you have possibility. I didn't. There's a lot in front of you. And this is like, you're going to be fine. This is it. You know, this is it. This week is it. And So I went into my egg retrieval with my grandmother in my head. And then when my cousin offered and said, I didn't expect to offer, but I was kind of pulled to offer. And she's named after our grandmother and I can help complete our family. It just became a full circle. And I remember saying to her, my dad carried your dad out of Hungary during the communist uprising. Your dad was on my dad's back and now you have my back. And this is amazing. And Ariel was frozen in time until my cousin offered. And you should know a lot of weird things have happened since, but that would be a whole other podcast because the attending nurse was named our grandmother's name. Like there were so many weird things happening around the name Ariel and the name Judith, my grandmother. And Ariel was the one who checked me into the hotel that night. 
There's so many weird patterns. Then on my podcast, on the Prankish podcast, I interview people with incredible past to parenthood. And you probably know in the community, there's someone named Ariel. Mm-hmm. I do. I'm Canadian. She lives in Canada. She had posted that she's working with an international gay couple to be their egg donor. I was like, this is amazing. You've never gone through infertility. You're a surrogate, an egg donor, a therapist. I need to have you on my podcast. Why are you dedicating your life to infertility? Booked her for the podcast. That week, I know it sounds insane. My mom calls me. Great, like, great story. Um, Your cousin, Peter, that's my dad's name. Your cousin in Hungary, uh, Peter and his husband, have flown into Canada for the first time since your wedding. They're working with an egg donor named Ariel here. And I was like, wait a minute. Well, my cousin Peter is my grandmother's cousin in Hungary. The statistical odds of having an egg donor in Canada when you're in Hungary and it being my cousin, that's my grandmother, like, and everyone has the same names. My dad is Peter, my daughter's Ariel. Like, it just starts getting really weird. So, Take it for what it is. You know, some people might just think it's an, an amazing coincidence, but it, it's, it keeps unfolding to me through these years because this was like recent. So that's my story. <laughs> crazy. It's an incredible story. Thank you. And <laughs> yeah, the names um, Ariel and Judith are not super common. No. It's interesting that those names continue to play out. And my so cousin is named signs. after her grandmother. All the signs. Okay, let's talk about pivot points. Yeah. I don't know how I don't know, I know how you, you go pivot. from there. Um, so you have done so many great things with elevating the discussion around infertility and supporting those to come out of the closet about their infertility for support, for resources, to feel less alone, mm-hmm. community, and and and. What was the moment? Mm-hmm where you decided you had to come out of the closet. Well, truly, I was doing media a lot as an author and on-air personality, and I kept being told by producers that infertility was niche and miscarriage was niche and that it was depressing. So I would pitch, I was writing relationship books, and I'd say the greatest, most underserved chapter of modern-day relationships is when sex does not make baby. And I need to talk about this. I'm talking about relationship trends. Here's your trend. And I was told no by so many producers that I knew and really liked, like good producers on morning shows. If media is not going to book me for this, I'll become the media to talk about it. And we became the first media platform in this category. And I knew media. I hosted TV shows. I'd written books. I I, I knew content. And I said, like, the content out here is so schlocky. The audience is not only having a high pain point, high stakes, it's generally an educated, thoughtful, smart, like, person who's being served like baby dust message boards. Like, there must be something better that's fact-checked, that's premium, that's professional. And we launched, and I, I worked with someone at Google to make sure I could make the claim, but we did. There was nothing like us. And we launched as the first platform solely dedicated to people who needed help to build a family. So I made it very clear when we launched Pregnantish, not just heterosexuals. So anyone who wants a baby and sex does not make baby, that includes LGBTQ, that includes singles, 
non-binary, everything, you know, anyone just who wants to build a family and can't do it the, the old fashioned fun way, come to us. <laughs> we have good stories, good community, good support. That's how we launch. And actually, we did inspire a lot of public people to come out of the infertility closet through these years. And Natalie, you were early on the scene too. So I do want to throw you some light there because you invited me on Fertilized years, years before these, this was even happening everywhere. It feels now it's like everywhere. But back in when I launched and when you were asking to interview me, it really wasn't everywhere. And I think we really did change the conversation. I think my form of advocacy was media. I was on every platform as an infertility person imaginable. New York Magazine and Toronto Star and New York Times and TV. I was like, I am infertile. For those of that don't know, I have had many iterations of my life and they have been predominantly corporate. However, in between those moments, I felt moved to do this undercover blog that I didn't want anybody that I worked with in the corporate sphere to know about. And that was because I was looking for some sort of community and to find others like me because I thought that I'm an alien. No one else is like this. Everyone else can sneeze and get pregnant. I can't do this. And so I just felt all of this, this grief, weird stuff. It's not weird. It's different. Right. And, and I didn't know how to find my people. So I thought if I start talking about it and, and I'm a marketer by trade. So if I talk about it in these little circles, just because I'm doing a blog doesn't mean everyone's going to know about it. But when I hit for post on that very first email telling people I had a blog, I think I just like sat and stared oh, at yeah, my computer same. screen to yeah. see like, oh gosh, everyone's going to know there's something wrong with me now. Are they going to judge me? Mm-hmm. And now in retrospect, that was all just crazy. You but know, that's exactly head, what I went through. Right? It's but that's what vulnerable. I wanted to ask you. I very to ask vulnerable. You. So you were vulnerable too. I feel like you came out guns blazing, like, I'm infertile. <laughs> I'm going to tell everybody about it and I'm going to be the spokesperson. Oh, uh, How did you feel? Like that very yeah. first time that you well, said I'm coming out. So when I came out, it was first on Facebook. But it's a great question because my husband was like, press, publish. I was shaking. So I did this very throw up on my computer screen post, which was like, blah, here's my baby being vulnerable. Well, you've seen me on book tours, what I've really been going through, and I told all my friends. I've had fertility shots in my purse, what you haven't known behind the scenes. Uh, My drawers look like I'm a junkie. I'm doing so many drugs, like literally in train station, like in alleyways. What you haven't known is that even though my body's been bruised, my heart's been so bruised, more bruised. And what you haven't known is that I'm really suffering and I don't, I'm not sharing this just to overshare. I'm sharing it because I've created something I've craved. And I know a lot of you silently consuming this are going through it too. And you are not alone. And my last line of that post was, so don't judge a Facebook by its cover. And I like puns clearly. So I pressed publish and I was shaking and my husband was like, you did it. And I was crying and I got inundated I'm sure the same with you I got inundated with messages and a few people said please 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 make this public I need to share it well I'm launching a platform called pregnant I can't stay silent about it but we weren't ready to launch it was January 2017 we were to launch in April I didn't have enough articles I'm like I can't launch yet no just press so I pressed publish I went to bed and I woke up to like five media requests 
And uh, New York Magazine and all these places said, can we interview you about this wacky platform dedicated to infertility? Like, that's how weird it was at that time. Isn't it amazing how far the industry has come? In fact, what blows your mind, looking back to where we are today? Yeah. What blows my mind is how it's it's everywhere. It's everywhere and it's nowhere at the same time because there's still so much work to be needed and but it blows my mind that in, in these six short years since I made that Facebook post, it's celebrities. I do think we had a small role in normalizing this conversation. Obviously, Resolve's been around. Resolve is the National Infertility Association. They do great work. They've been around for over 40 years with true advocacy, and they're, that's so important. But, I mean, the way I spoke in media everywhere about my infertility a lot of public people said, you've inspired me to do the same. And then, you know, it's a it's like a funny thing. We have so many like reality stars and sports anchors and all these people in our audience at Pregnantish because they would tell their friends. So Sarah Walsh, who's a Fox anchor, told her friend Nicole Briscoe at ESPN, like it, it ended up just spreading through through these celebrities, telling other celebrities. So it's been really cool to see it everywhere. And it's a huge sense of relief, really. Like yeah. I can speak from experience with yeah. you of being able to just say, I have gone through this, I'm going through this, and it sucks. And being able to just get it off your chest is so therapeutic. Yeah. So I can imagine that this was amazing, especially for people who are so public that felt like they were hiding, right? Living a double life. Totally. Like you were, too. Yeah, 100%. And question for yeah. you. So we're talking a little bit about Pregnantish and Pregnantish has really bridged the gap, not only between the conversation and the community and people, but you're also bridging the gap between patients and providers. I know you've been doing a lot of work in this space. Mm -hmm. Can you tell me about what you've been doing and what you plan to do? Sure. Yeah. Thank you for asking that because it's something I'm so passionate about. So I started through Pregnantish. People were tell, asking me constantly for clinic recommendations. I personally hopped around so many times to doctors. You probably did too, right? To me, that's problematic that we're spending so much time and money and you're not being served the way you need to be served during a very high stakes, vulnerable time, high money. But it's not always the provider's fault. Like that's the thing I started to realize too. The providers not only sometimes weren't seeing us as human because they were so busy and overloaded, we weren't seeing them as human. It's like Dr. So-and-so in a white lab coat, like we sometimes didn't realize how much they care. Like they went into this because they want us to have healthy babies. And it started to feel like it was an us and them. And doctors were writing to us. We're really frustrated with like how many people aren't seeing it through. IVF doesn't often work the first time. Can you help with the education to patients about the process? And I was just like, wow, this is an issue for patients and providers. We're actually on the same team. I've written relationship advice my whole career. It never takes one to make a baby. It doesn't take one to make a baby in art. Like in reproductive technology, we need more than one. So why don't we come together in this kind of what I think of like almost like marriage therapy to bring patients and providers together to work better together. I need to educate both sides. It can't be one side. I want to teach patients to better advocate for themselves and and stick with something, but in a way that feels 
aligned with their values, their needs, all of that. And I want to teach providers and providers are just doctors. It's every part of the care continuum. So billing, nurses, they're all burnt out. But like sometimes not everyone is patient as you have questions or as you. So just training them a little to understand it's not personal. If someone has a million questions, like that's actually a good sign that she cares so much or they care so much. Like that's great. The exciting thing about it is I know that doctors love data. So we sourced the largest study on patient retention a couple of years ago called Why I Left My Fertility Clinic. And I, I spoke about it at ASRM, the American Reproductive, and I was part of a great panel that my friend put together there. Then I was invited with a poster presentation to ESHRAE, which is the European conference. We got an encore, and I did that in partnership with Merck Global, an encore presentation at the UK conference in January in Belfast. I'm now speaking at the New England Fertility Society. Why I share all this isn't like just to puff my chest. It's, it's that gosh, this is so needed, right? Like like the fact that I keep getting invited to share the research, because I published a 50-page guidelines report. I was published with the research in the journal Human Reproduction, so now it blows my mind, but I'm scientifically published, which helps doctors realize that may not have been like, who's this blogger, which I hate, no offense to blogs, some blogs are great, I'm not a blogger. I've been my entire life a professional journalist, and I bring that same investigation to this, right? Right. So I am very excited by it. And we've launched out of this a market research division that's kick-ass called Pregnant Insights, where we're going to be soon, and I don't even think I've told you, Natalie, launching another nationwide study on bridging the patient provider gap. And my whole goal is to bring us together to the table to make that healthy baby with love, not with uh, us and them. Amazing. Amazing. Because Everybody comes into it with so much emotion. I mean, how could you not? And providers, you know, clinicians and, and, and those that work in that space, that's their professional mm-hmm. job, right? And they're supposed to be the expert and they are the experts. But just because they're an expert doesn't mean we're supposed to look at them as our therapists, mm-hmm. right? And so everybody has yeah. their sort of their thing. And some doctors are amazing at it all they are high iq and eq right but there are some that are are more on the high iq side too and and that's all wonderful and lovely i think it's about finding the right person within and and if that's not the actual doctor finding the person that is going to be patient forward and facing and um a lot of times too at least in my experience and the reason that i left was lack of communication. Mm-hmm. I actually think as the as the awareness has exploded, yeah. so much money, private equity, you know, has been poured into the fertility industry. Sure. And decisions are sometimes made without thinking of the human side of the patient or provider. So a lot of embryologists, nurses, doctors are burnt out. There's like major issues happening as as nice. because what are these Now, I don't want to demonize. There's a lot of great business people making um, investments and decisions, but sometimes the ones just sniff the money trail and are trying to see more people, more people, more patients, more turnover, more conversion. And if you don't consider communication, human toll, human contact, all of that, 
you may lose out. And that's actually what we're trying to illuminate for the industry. Like it's not the patient journey in this category. They're not purchasing a cupcake. It takes a lot of time for someone to use an egg donor, for someone to decide on IVF, for someone to afford IVF. Like these things take time. And so your metrics of how things look in the patient journey don't actually match. Because I've seen some of these cases don't actually match the, 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 the experience we go through. So don't scratch your heads if you're not keeping people when you treat them this way. And anyway, I think so many people are doing great work. So this is not to throw providers under the bus or business people. I am grateful business people are investing in this. Thank goodness. We need their help. But understanding the patient experience in a deeper way is going to benefit everyone. Hugely. I think there's in the larger picture, a reason why medicine is moving towards concierge style. It's, it's fascinating that you're, you're in it through the research mm-hmm. and you have your finger on the pulse of what is actually happening right now. Mm-hmm. I never thought that would be part of Pregnantish, but the study, the popularity of this first study and I, what I've been an author, like it kind of makes sense that, and relationship author, so it kind of makes sense to look at it through that lens could actually, hopefully, if we do our job right, positively improve for everybody, improve this experience. I also, by the way, want to help clinicians get the care they need. (laughs) Because, gosh, well, if you look at the numbers, embryologists and nurses, burnout, one thing you have to do when you apply to a scientific conference is show the research over the years that have been done on this similar topic, how yours is different or how yours is similar. I dug into 40 years of research for our submission. The pain point's been there every decade that people, that patients are burnt out and clinicians are burnt out. What are we going to do about it? Fascinating. What we're not going to do about it is if we keep doing the same thing and expecting different results. We have a bucket that's leaking. If we keep filling the bucket, we're not serving the people making the magic in the labs, and we're not serving the patients that are needed to make the baby, you know? Like right. So so what are we doing? So yeah, so that's how I, I haven't physically undergone fertility treatment since 2018 when my cousin had the embryo transfer, but then I was in the lab, I mean, the clinic a lot. But um, yeah, I, I do a lot of tours. I, I meet with a lot of people kind of in the weeds in this. I feel very privileged that they share off the record, sometimes cry to me, literally doctors. You would never know, Natalie. I've had doctors cry to me wow. about how burnt out they are. That's problematic. That's hugely problematic. Yes. I want to bring this up on your podcast because I think as a patient advocate, which we both are, So often we don't think about that side. We don't think about what they're managing or dealing with. And if we saw them as more human, also it might help, right? Both sides need to see that. 100%. They they got into the business because they are... Doctors typically have a different kind of heart than a business person. Different kind of life. But I I think it's, it's really beautiful. And this world has evolved and changed in so many ways over the last decade let alone last five years mm-hmm. it's it's mind blowing yeah so everybody everybody deserves to be taken care of so what are some resources that you would recommend to those that are facing infertility 
or are trying to support someone who is? Well, pregnant-ish is not the only great resource out there. So I will mention like one thing that I love that Resolve does is support groups in, in person. Uniquely Knitted, I think, does that as well. I think anytime you can physically be with your community, that's great. So those are definitely important. I also would suggest infertility-focused therapists. I know a lot of great ones. It's one of these things like someone to know those nuances may be helpful. And I just think for people supporting people going through infertility, I would say you don't have to solve something when someone's grieving. You just need to hold the space in a way that acknowledges what they're feeling. And that's the best thing you can do. A hundred percent. And I am speaking from experience, but also I think in terms of general grief, right? Mm-hmm. I think the same applies. Mm-hmm. It's, it's the grief. same anywhere, right? It's going through something hard. If somebody has tried something, right? And then hears it from someone else, it feels so undermining. I can't tell you how many times somebody would say, have you just tried? Oh yeah. Just go on vacation, just relax, just yeah. relax. It was like, it's the worst. That should be like a slogan. The thing with just relax, not only, no, that's the wrong advice, yeah, but no, also when you're going through something so stressful, the thing you should say is, of course you're stressed. How can I support you? That's much better. You are so much more than your infertility experience. And most of your interviews are infertility centric at this point. So what is something that you wouldn't normally share during an infertility interview about yourself, about your personal Mm -hmm. self, like that would be so off topic if you talked about it? Oh, during an infertility interview. Um, I would say that I'm trying to get back into music composition because I was a very serious piano player growing up and I competed and I love making music. And I I actually lost that part of myself. I live in a New York apartment, right? (laughs) Like we don't have a piano, but my daughter gravitates to music and wants to play piano. So it's, I'm relearning, I'm reconnecting with that part of myself. And I started composing a new song about a week ago. I was in Toronto, my sister has a piano, and it just felt so good. And I think I might just re-engage in that part of my life. Ooh, do you think this will be like a professional thing? No, gosh, no. Just for fun. Uh, <laughs> just for fun. No, uh, but we do a lot of video production at Pregnish Productions. Maybe I'll score one of our videos. I, yeah, I, I think uh, music is just, you know, music and writing is connected because it's the voice of some, I'm telling a story in a different way, right? But um, I have a terrible eye, but I have a pretty good ear for music and for writing. And so that's what I'm going to just, yeah. How about you? Who are you outside of it? What am I excited about? I'm excited about this podcast. I am too. So exciting. All over again, which has entirely new meaning since my life has sort of pivoted in the last, uh, I don't know, six months or so. So on that note, Andrea, I always want to keep the conversation going as long as I possibly can. I cannot thank you enough for being here, for sharing your voice with me and for sharing your voice on behalf of so many in the infertility community and for the great work that you are doing 
between patients, providers, the community. It's, it's truly brilliant. So thank you again. Thank you. It was such an honor to be one of your early podcast guests. You're going to be great at this because you're, you're just a compassionate person with also a great voice. So I appreciate being here and I will continue using my voice. I know you will too, to just support people going through life moments. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to this episode of the all over again podcast. I hope that you learned something from today's episode. If you enjoyed this, please leave a five-star review about All Over Again on Apple Podcasts. Please also let me know what spoke to you about the episode on our social media channels at All Over Again Podcast. I can't wait to hear from you.